Well, good morning, everyone. It's um, <clears throat> a real treat to be here. I don't get invited to, to speak at many places at all. So when, uh, when Pastor Nathan suggested a, a pulpit swap, I was like, yeah, I'll take whatever I can get just to, to kind of get out and, um, and be somewhere else. This pulpit's a little bit smaller than usual, so I might just stick that there for a second. Um, but in all seriousness, though, I have kind of followed you guys as a church from afar for, for quite a few years now, not only through, you know, meeting with, um, with Pastor Nathan, uh, you know, we try to catch up for coffee every now and again, uh, but also I knew Pastor Steve previously and, and even the pastor before that. I was on a, uh, an SIM kind of monthly thing with Pastor Steve back in the day, so um, it's, it's, it is nice to finally be here in person. And, uh, and I'm sure our people at Aloha are going to thoroughly enjoy having Pastor Nathan uh, with them, who I'm actually going to uh, head over. I've got a, a couple of announcements I need to give at our church later on today anyway, so I'll be heading over there um, straight after this. But, uh, but really excited. Look, I'll pray just to get us started, and I'm going to just preach through what seems to be kind of a, like, oh, that's a weird or interesting parable to, to preach on, but, uh, but I think there are some truths there, some encouraging truths for us to be able to take away um, this morning as, as servants of Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the, the privilege we have of being here and gathered as your people uh, to worship as we've done through, through song, but also now to worship as we receive from your word. Uh, Father, I pray and ask that, um, that whatever is, is spoken here is, is helpful, edifying, anything that's that's not of you, that it would just kind of fall away by the wayside, but that your spirit would take um, your word and apply it to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Something that uh, we all know is that uh, throughout our lifetime, um, life is really about being assessed on things. It doesn't matter how, how young you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. Um, we're given tasks to do and to complete, and then we're assessed on how well or not we've done on those tasks. Uh, I think of um, Mia. She's, she's 12 now, but uh, I think Christian knows Mia. They were in Mordale together. But, but I remember back when they were in year five. It doesn't matter how young you are. They were given a, a speech to prepare. I, I, I would have been terrified to have to prepare a speech in year five. I'm terrified to have to do one now, let alone year five. Um, uh, sorry, five, five years old, kindergarten. And then they were assessed on how well they did their speech, right? Uh, and given a mark. Uh, you, you get to high school, and it, it probably seems like life is all about assessments and tasks, and it's kind of fascinating. Depending on how well you do on those, kind of can determine what you get to do for the rest of your life. Uh, work is the same if you're an adult and in the workplace, given uh, assessments projects to work on, and, you know, depending on how well you do on those could result in a raise or a promotion or something like that. Even at home, we're even assessed at home. I don't know if any of you uh, men can relate to this, but uh, there are times where uh, my wife is like the nobleman in this, in this parable, where she's, she's away for the day, and, uh, and she'll make sure to, to, to leave me a lot of business to be engaged with, with at home, while she's away, literally, she'll leave me a list of things to do and leave it on the kitchen bench and expect them to be done. And, and I can admit, uh, probably like many of you men, uh, there have been times I've grossly miscalculated 
just how much time I had before her return and, uh, and sometimes without even starting on the list only to uh, have to face her, her wrath, her fury. But the point is, you see, being given a task to complete and, uh, and being assessed on how well we've completed that task, it's, it's part of our everyday normal life. And now I think what we learn from this parable is that the same seems to be true for the Christian life. For us as disciples, followers of Jesus. You see, Jesus, while still here on earth, he gave us, his disciples, a task to do. He told us that he would be gone for a time, promised he would return. We don't know when that will be, but we know that through this parable, when Jesus does return, us, his followers, his disciples, his servants, we will be assessed. We're going to be assessed. But here's the thing. Unlike my wife's list, which is, uh, it's, it's, it really is just about kind of going through and, and ticking off these boxes, we're not going to be assessed on how well we've kind of just ticked a whole bunch of to-do lists or those kind of things. And also, unlike my wife's list, which is about how, how clean and tidy I can get the house before she returns, we won't be assessed on how tidy or cleaned up our lives can get before he returns. No. Imagine how exhausting it would be as Christians to go through life like that. Instead, what we learn through this parable is that ultimately, what we're going to be assessed on isn't about accomplishments or, or the big things that we're able to achieve. It's about how trustworthy, how faithful we have been with all that we've been given, everything that God has given us. Our minds might jump to our wealth, our money, our possessions, and it is that. And yes, the parable kind of specifically is focused on that in the parable. But I believe Jesus really wants us to be thinking about everything we've been given. Think about how, how uniquely talented. And I know many of you are, are very talented, skillful. You have gifts that you've been given. You've been blessed with so much. And we will be assessed on how trustworthy we've been with all of that. How trustworthy have you been with investing and using those gifts, not to make a financial profit, to make a spiritual profit for the kingdom of God. To be storing up not so much treasures on earth, which isn't a bad thing in itself, storing up treasures in heaven. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. And so, so this is the main, this is the first question I believe the parable is going to want us to ask. Are you a trustworthy servant? Today. Think about today. This, I mean, I, I love that verse in, in Lamentations where his mercies are made new every morning. Forget the parable. I'm just going to walk through it a little bit. and to try to, I, want, I want to show you how we get to that question through Jesus' own words here and through his own parable. So if you follow along there, I think there's a verse there in verse 11. He starts off by saying, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Verse 11 kind of sets the scene for us of, of what's going on, where Jesus is at here. Jesus has just finished, if you know a little bit of Luke chapter 19, the previous verses, Jesus has just finished having lunch with little Zacchaeus. We know the Zacchaeus story. right? He just finishes off with Zacchaeus. And Jesus tells Zacchaeus that salvation has come upon your house. 
In other words, Zacchaeus just, has just gotten saved, in other words, right? His life is changed forever, which is usually what happens when you meet Jesus in this kind of real, genuine, repentful way. Your life is never the same. So Zacchaeus meets Jesus, he gets saved, and so there seems to be kind of this, this buzz around this idea of salvation, at least amongst the disciples. But also get this, since they're kind of in the story, heading towards Jerusalem, it says they're near to Jerusalem, and since Jerusalem was like the epicenter for the Jews, right, that's where all the action, if you're a Jew, that's where all the action happened. That's where the Messiah was supposed to come and establish his kingdom forever. So with all of what's going on, what just happened to Zacchaeus, they're headed to Jerusalem. The disciples must have been thinking, awesome, it's time, it's happening, this is when we'll get to become a kingdom again. And so that, that's why it says that. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's what everyone's expectations was. And Jesus, knowing that this is what they must have been thinking, he tells them a parable. He gives them this parable as kind of a way of saying, yes, kingdom's coming, king's returning. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. Let's just slow down for a second, disciples. It's not time yet. Yes, I'm returning. The king will come back. But until then, until then, there's work to do. Until then, until Jesus returns, there's business that we need to be engaged in. And so then he tells a parable. He goes on, verse 12 onwards, to tell us and explain what that is. What is it that us disciples, servants, need to be engaged in until he returns? So verse 12, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten miners, we'll explain what that is in a moment, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. I'll pause there for a second, because there's, there's something kind of interesting about this particular parable. It is perhaps one of the few, if not the only one, that seems to be based on actual events. True story. Let me explain. You see, you guys know this. Who was the person reigning over Judea when Jesus was born? Who was it? King Herod. Herod the Great, okay? We know this thanks to the historical documents like the Gospel of Matthew, thanks to historians like Josephus. But we also know that Herod the Great wasn't great, really, was he? He was, he was a murderer. He was quite brutal. Uh, he even tried to kill baby Jesus. We know the story. But now here's the thing. When Herod dies, there was some confusion over who would be next on the throne, who was going to sit next as ruler over the Jews, over Judea? And so you've got two of his sons, Antipas and Archelaus, who were trying to claim rights to the throne, to be the, the successor. So just like in this parable, let's just focus on, on Archelaus for a moment, who was of noble birth, son of the king, King Herod. Archelaus, and I'm just going to kind of geek out on a bit of history here for a moment, but Archelaus travels to a far distant country. In his case, it was the city of Rome. 
And he travels to the city of Rome in order to try and get Caesar Augustus to, to crown him as the new ruler. The Jews, however, were outraged at the prospect of having Archelaus ruling over them because he was just as brutal as his father. And so what do the Jews do? They hated him so much, they opposed him so much, they gather a delegation of 50 Jewish leaders, send them to Rome as well in order to to oppose Caesar Augustus getting him crowned as king. Now, what ends up happening, Caesar Augustus doesn't just kind of hand it all over to Archelaus. He kind of divides it up amongst his sons. Archelaus gets, gets a region. Antipas gets, I think it was Galilee. Uh, another one of his sons, Philip, gets another, another region. But Archelaus was so angry at this that when he returned to Jerusalem, those Jews who had opposed him, who he now considered to be his enemies, you know what he does? Has them killed has them slaughtered. Interesting, kind of brings light to the end of the parable there in verse 27 where it says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and I'll, I'll have them slaughtered. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating that Jesus, being the great storyteller that he, he was, he can take these horrific true events Perhaps as a great storyteller, as a hook, gets them interested. Let me tell you this, this kind of these true facts that they would have known. As a hook, gets them interested to now use that as a lesson to teach them about the kingdom of God, a lesson about himself. See, because ultimately this parable isn't about um, Archelaus. Jesus is talking about himself here. Jesus is teaching about this noble man of birth. If you know Luke chapter 18, the previous chapter, there are various occasions where Jesus is referred to as the son of David. And you might already know this, but that's a clear reference to Jesus being connected or linked to the the kingly line of David. Jesus is that man of noble birth. But now how about this idea of going off to a far country and receiving a kingdom? What's that about? Where does Jesus fit in? How is that about Jesus? Well, this is where I believe that us disciples today, we're actually at a vantage point that those disciples back then didn't have. Because Jesus hadn't yet died and rose again. And so what we know now is that after Jesus' death and resurrection, where does he go? Goes back to the Father. Be crowned as king. And now, right now, is seated at the right hand of the Father as king, waiting to return and establish his kingdom here forever. And so we know and we've established that Jesus said in this parable is referring about himself. But now here is where we get to some of the main lessons of the parable because you see the king, what does he do before he leaves? He gives his servants one minor each tells them to get to work, engage in business until I come. One miner was roughly three to four months wages, salary, right? Depending on what profession you're in today or, you know, what, what you do for a living. Average $15,000, $20,000, four months worth. He's, he, they're given that amount of money and he says, engage in business until I come. Put this money to work until I come back could literally be translated, make a profit. 
here's 15, 20 grand, put it to work, make a profit, make this money grow. We, we all know what it means to make a profit, don't we? Some, some more than others. I'm hopeless in this area. But you guys know, here's an initial amount of money, here's an investment, make it grow. When I return, I want to see more than what I gave you. Jesus takes this example from the business world, applies it to the spiritual world. Take what you have been given, disciples. Everything you have, gifts, talents, money, wealth, possessions, whatever it may be. When I return, I want to see how you've made it grow. Not financially, necessarily, but for the kingdom. And so here's the first lesson, I think, or the first question, lesson, that this parable wants us to be thinking about. It's this. I think there's a slide for this one too. I think it's time to to take stock of our lives just for a moment. This, This parable wants us to pause, to reflect, take stock of our lives and to think about all that you have. And it's a lot, right? We live in a pretty pretty blessed and and wealthy nation. But maybe it is more than just wealth and and possessions and property. Skills. Your abilities. Your unique God-given talents. Spiritual gifts. Whatever it may be. Maybe it is wealth. Maybe it is property. Whether Whether you've made or you've inherited. Whatever it is. Think about that. Or take audit of your life. You know, we're coming up to the end of the financial year and we're all going to have to kind of take stock in audit of our, our lives and our money and everything. Do that with your life right now. And then once you've, you've done that, it leads to this second question. How's that? How are you investing it? How are you putting all of that to work? Are you putting it to work? Is it being used at all for the kingdom? Knowing that Jesus could return at any moment, and he will. He could return at any moment. It could be today. It could be while I'm speaking. How are they being used? How are they being invested? Because you will give an account. That's another reality that this parable leaves us with. You, we will be assessed and give an account of all of that. That which you've just taken stock of, we're going to give an account. And you know how we know it? Because of how the parable continues. Look at verse 15. When he returned, because he will return, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him saying, Lord, your miner has made ten miners more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall receive authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your miner has made five miners. And he said to them, you are to be over five cities. And so let's just pause there for a moment and notice some more encouraging realities that these verses highlight for us. And here's the first one. The reality of life is some of us are just going to be more capable than others. Uh, and that's just the truth. I know, someone like me, I need to hear that. Some are just, gonna, some are just more, that's just how life works. Right? God chooses to, to, to work and move and through whomever, however he pleases. He's going to give each one of us various degrees of capabilities and skills in different areas of life. And he's going to expect us to, to, to use those. 
I'll give you a, a silly example, but, um, but, but uh, I studied at, uh, at Sydney Missionary Bible College, SMBC, and I have a, a group of friends who I did that with. Same education at the Bible College, same calling, you know, you might say, to ministry, to preach and to teach, and we begin then uh, entrusted with churches to, to lead and to, to grow. Some are just skilled and more capable than others. Uh, I, I look at some of these guys, and I, gotta, I, gotta, I, I need to like kind of check myself and, 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 uh, and not be covetous at, at times. I say, Lord, why are you blessing them more than me? Why are their churches growing five, ten times more than, than our church? And I just got to ask a question sometimes. It's not about that. It's not about the accomplishment. It's not about the growth, which is what we're going to get to in a moment. It's about how trustworthy we are being with what we've been given. And so that's the first thing. Some are more capable than others, and that leads to the, 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 the second one. It's not about the numbers. Some are more capable than others, but the parable also teaches us that ultimately he's not interested in the numbers. Right? The, the, the second guy is given the same amount of miners, he produces five, as opposed to the first guy who produces ten. And did you notice the king is, isn't upset with the second guy? Because he only produced five and not ten. Why? Again, it's not about the performance or the accomplishments that are being assessed here, is it? It's their trustworthiness that is being assessed, their faithfulness. Even with the little they have been given, that's what's being assessed, their trustworthiness. And that's good news for some of us, isn't it? Perhaps you're a very, like, results-orientated kind of person, KPIs, all that kind of thing. And, and you might be tempted to, to look at this parable and, and to read it and, and say, and, and get caught up in wondering, God, have I done enough for you in this life? God, God, have I made enough spiritual profit for the kingdom? Have I stored up enough treasures in, in heaven? And you just get so exhausted and caught up in wondering, instead of seeing what the main point of the story is, and it's this. God just wants you to be trustworthy with what you have now. He just calls us to be trustworthy with what we have and what you have now is a lot. Let's be honest. What we have now is, is a lot. We're a very wealthy nation, very wealthy people. And if we're being very honest, most of you, most of us, have more than what we know what to do with, right? That's just reality. And on top of that, each one of you is so gifted, so uniquely talented. God has skilled you in so many areas. We have so much right now available to give back to the Lord, to give back to His service, to ministry, to missionaries. The results, the profits, the good news is that's, that's not up to us, is it? Right? God is the only one who could, could give or take away spiritual profits. The Scriptures teach us that yes, we plant the seed, we water the seed, but who gives the growth? God gives the growth. And so that's why he seems to be less interested in the accomplishments, the return, and far more interested in finding you trustworthy, finding you to be a faithful servant. Are they two words, qualities that characterize you today? 
faithful, trustworthy. Yes, we're talking about, you know, in the realm of investing for the kingdom of God, but I just wonder in, in general, just your own Christian character, are you faithful and trustworthy? This, this is something that, uh, again, as someone in ministry and in, in pastoral work, uh, is really a heavy burden at the moment, especially if you follow a lot of the, the Christian news, scandals, Christian leaders failing time and time again, guys that we've looked up to, that I have in ministry, guys like Ravi, Zachary, you know, these kind of stories, they just keep happening and happening. It's easy to preach and teach about being trustworthy and faithful, but I, so with a lot of this in mind, we've, we've done something a little bit radical at our church over the last couple of years, and we do this especially with the, the young guys and, and elders and leaders that we're training to teach and preach and to lead the church. Um, I'll actually go to the people closest to them, wives, if they've got adult kids, kids, right, adult kids, and, um, and I'll ask them, would you endorse your dad, your husband's ministry? Because we take this as such a high calling to be involved in ministry to teach, this idea of being found faithful and trustworthy. I'll be honest, nine out of ten times, thankfully, uh, the wife or the child says, yes, we're happy for, for, for my husband or to be seen up there speaking on behalf of the Lord because that's what we're doing for half an hour on a Sunday. But you know what it's also done for us? There have been cases where one family said no. And, uh, and, and, and we're thankful for that to happen because then it led to kind of pastoral care and we, other issues we needed to, to work with that family. This is such a high calling that we have been given as Christians, not just preachers, as, as ministers of the gospel in general, to be found faithful and trustworthy with what we're being given. One of the, um, one of the guys that, that I've you know, looked up to for many since I was a teenager, a guy, and I, I know he's a controversial character, I know, but a guy called John MacArthur, uh, one of, on, my, on my, my bucket list when I turned 40, we went to the USA, got to kind of sit under his... His teaching there at Grace Community Church. Um, anyway, something I've learned from him, from, from many, because we're in the moment now of bringing on an, an associate pastor of the church. And this guy, has got an impressive resume, impressive CV, uh, trained at Moore College, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I remember John MacArthur saying, because someone asked him in a Q&A, how do you um, hire new staff or bring on new, new people to work at your church? And he said, you know what, we look, we look for, for men who are trustworthy and faithful and then we hire them and then we work out the role around that we work out the role around character and I was like I like that and so I remember we've, we've ad we tried to advertise for many years we couldn't find anyone impressive CVs impressive resumes but uh, we got to a point I was just like Lord it's exhausting to try to find you know I don't know if you guys have ever you know, found it hard to, to find staff here it's like Lord look you can do miracles big things I'm just going to trust you Bring someone to our church who's just going to be part of our fellowship, our congregation. Someone that we know and that we can vouch for is trustworthy and faithful. And then we'll hire them. And we'll work out the role around them. Sounds impossible. Who would want to come and join your church who's looking for a job who's trained? In God's providence, he did that. This guy's been part of our church almost a year. Trained, ex-pastor. And he's like, it was a no-brainer for us. But we know him. 
and he's trustworthy and faithful. It's such a, um, it, it's such a priceless commodity nowadays, isn't it? To find people, even in your own workplaces, people are just faithful and trustworthy. And that's what the master demands of each one of us. How are we going with that, friends? How are we going? If he was to return today, would you hear the words coming out of his mouth about you? Well done, good and faithful servant. Finally, there's, there's one last servant we, we do need to get to. It'd be nice, wouldn't it, to just end there and to just say, um, you know, church, go out and be faithful with what you have. You know, be encouraged to do that. And, and, and we could wrap it up there and that'd be a good sermon to give. But the parable doesn't end there, does it? And so therefore, I don't think Jesus would want us to end there. I think he would want us to end with all the lessons that this parable has for us. And there's one more, and it's this. Just sitting on all that you've been given, just sitting on those resources, gifts, talents, those miners, whatever it is, doing nothing with those for the kingdom of God, doing nothing, not going and doing everything in your power to make spiritual profit with those, that's just not an option for us as disciples, as servants of Christ. It's not an option. In fact, Jesus would tell us through this parable that if you're going to leave here this morning deciding to do nothing with all of that, there are severe consequences for, for us. Verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your minor, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Again, let's just pause there for a second because this, this last servant was either very confused or just kind of deciding to fabricate his own reality and perspective of things. He's accusing the master of being a severe man when in reality, the master was so generous with him to begin with, gives him three months' salary to work with. The master deposits and sows into this guy's lie. But then the servant turns around and has the audacity to accuse the master of taking what doesn't belong to him. It makes no sense. It all belongs to him. The servant belongs to him. It's all of the master. And so the master isn't a severe man. He's a generous man. And not only is he a generous man, he also seems to be a very patient man. A very patient man, because notice how the master replies to the servant's wicked response, wicked remarks about the master. The master's like, okay, let, let's just use your own logic here for a moment, servant. Verse 22, he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Okay, let's say you, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not. Why then did you just not put my money in the bank? And then I would have come back and collected it with interest. I don't think the master's agreeing with the servant's assessment about, about himself. But for a moment, he's like, okay, let's use your own words. Let's use your own argument here. And let's imagine they were true. And so he's like, well, if you knew me so, so well, that I was a hard and severe man, if you knew that, well, why did you do nothing? Why did you just sit in your hands and do nothing? You could have done at least the most basic and simplest of things. Go to a bank, leave it there, and see some re returns in a few months. Right? Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not a finance guy, but if anyone who has done 
the simplest of banking knows that's how it works. That's the least you could do. Something as simple as going to a bank, it's something. It's not nothing. I think that's all he's trying to say. But the master is like, instead, you did nothing. And you know what you've revealed by doing nothing? You've revealed actually that you're a liar. You've lied about my character. You've revealed that you are actually lazy because you did nothing the time while I was away. But ultimately, you've shown, servant, you don't know me at all. You don't know. If you had known me, you would have known I wasn't after your works. I wasn't after some big return. I was after your heart. I simply just wanted you to be a loyal servant, a faithful servant, a trustworthy servant. I simply just wanted you not to take our relationship for granted. Not to take my generosity and all the blessings for granted. Instead, you've revealed your wickedness, which Jesus in this context seems to equate with laziness. Have you ever thought about that? By being lazy, with all the blessings you've been given by God, perhaps you could be accused this morning of being a wicked servant. That's a scary thought. And so because of your wickedness, verse 26, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even that will be taken away. I wonder if, um, I could be speculating here, like I don't want to add to the word of God and heap on cursings because of that. I'm just speaking, okay. But I wonder if Jesus had someone in mind while he's actually telling and giving this parable. Because a wicked servant is that. He's a servant. He seems to be someone connected to Jesus, someone around Jesus. I wonder if he has someone in mind. Can you think of someone, probably even with Jesus, at the time of telling this parable, who fits the description of someone who was given so much and yet ultimately had it all taken away from him? Judas, right? Judas comes to mind, one of the twelve, part of the inner circle, there for the feeding, there for all the men, given so much. Jesus even invests in him seemingly by giving him responsibilities within the group. It was probably the, the treasure we're told in the scriptures that he was charged of the money bag, right? Here is a man, and, and maybe we need to reflect on this, connected to Jesus for many years, in and out, church every week, servants of Jesus, but we come to find out he really doesn't know Jesus at all, really, does he? Not as, not as Lord, Savior, and Master. We come to find out that, that although he was a disciple of Jesus, he was not loyal and trustworthy. He was there for perhaps what he could get from Jesus, the benefits of Jesus. I know people in our own church context who have just stuck around. What can we get out of this? The Judas dipping into the money bag, ultimately 30 pieces of silver. But finally, even what he did have would ultimately be taken away from him and there would be no place in the kingdom for him. But Judas is an extreme case study, isn't he? I mean, there there may be some of you who fit that description here today. I don't know. But I suspect that most of us here this morning are probably more like the other servants. You do want to be found trustworthy. You do want to be found faithful. And if that's you, here's the good news, and I'm, I'm finishing up soon. 
Here's the good news. For us servants, for us disciples who do wish to be found faithful and trustworthy, it's this. Get this. And, and you all know this. If you are sitting here today, sitting here still, living, breathing, taking a breath, it's because one of two things haven't happened. Jesus hasn't returned, or he hasn't decided to take you to heaven yet. And I see that, that sounds very obvious. But that's actually very dear to my heart at the moment. You know why? Because my dad was, was taken from us just a couple of months ago. Sudden heart attack, gone. You know, I'm preaching on another parable next Sunday, and it just reminds me of that. The, the guy who just, um, just focused on storing up treasures on earth, and so he needs to build big barns, and then one night his life is demanded just like that from him. You know, that, that, was, that was like my dad. He was for, for most of his life, an untrustworthy, unfaithful, wicked servant. And so I just remember even um, a month before he, he died was his 70th birthday. And just sitting there, we're at my, uh, my, my sister's place, we have dinner, and I just had a moment with him one-on-one. -on -one. And, uh, and in God's grace, he had been coming to church for the last few couple of years of his life. But even then, just unsure of where he stood with Jesus. And just saying... What if your life was demanded of you right now? What would you hear Jesus say about you, to you? Would he welcome you into the kingdom forever? Jesus hasn't returned. You haven't been taken to heaven yet. And that's good news. Why? Because it means there's still time. God is the master, is very patient and merciful with us. He's giving you time. It's not too late. Perhaps up until now, you have been that lazy servant. The good news is there's time to turn that around, right? Like Jesus says to Zacchaeus, today is the day of salvation. Well, in the same way, today there's time to turn your life around. And perhaps you're like, I want to. I just don't know what that looks like. I just don't know how to, to invest the minors, the gifts, the talents. Well, well here's the, the, the next piece of good news. He's got some amazing people, you know, I was talking to someone earlier, she's talking about the, the mentors in this church in her life. There are people that you can ask. That's the best place to start, just to have that attitude. I'll give it all. I'll use it. Guide me. Talk to Pastor Nathan or Pastor Ernest. They'll give you some direction, some guidance into how to start investing into the kingdom of God, to make spiritual profit, to store treasures in heaven. But at the very least, in the very least, hopefully you'll avoid being that lazy servant who couldn't even get up to the bank to invest the money. Hopefully your takeaway isn't, well, what's the very least I can do for the kingdom? Right? Because he's just using that as an example. That's the least you could have done. Don't, go, don't take away and say, well, okay, what's the very least I can do? Okay, maybe I can give. No, no, no. I mean, there's, there's so much more that we have been given and that God wants to do and use you for his kingdom. But I think the main lesson is just to ask yourself today, take stock of all that it is and just start there. Am I being a trustworthy, faithful servant with so many blessings that he has? And to know that today, in an hour, this afternoon, uh, our master could return at any time. We will be assessed and we will give an account for the blessed way that he has given us so much. So, Thank you.